Are you becoming a mature believer? Or are you still suffering from an immature mindset, which is causing you to suffer from an arrested state of spiritual development? Now, with this question in mind, I should take a moment to point out that uh, immature people, uh, well, they're easy to spot. And I I know you're looking at me right now. But immature people are easy to spot. For example, immature uh, people are those who, they always need to be the center of attention. Immature people are those who are unable to admit that they're wrong. Immature people, these are the people who are always unaware of how their words and their actions might affect others. And immature people are unable to receive criticism from those who correct them. With all of this in mind, we should all take a moment to ask a very simple question. And the question is this, am I an immature believer? Or am I a Christian who is maintaining a biblical mindset, which is helping me to develop into a disciple who is becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, before you rush to answer that question, I want to take some time this morning to consider what the Bible says about the mindset of maturity. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the mindset of maturity includes consummate teachability. Secondly, we'll see that the mindset of maturity also includes considerate humility. Thirdly and finally, we'll see that the mindset of maturity also includes compassionate generosity. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually spending time with a group of Pharisees on the Sabbath day. And as you make your way to the 14th chapter of Luke, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was in our study last week when we learned about that day when a group of Pharisees, uh, they came and they warned the Lord Jesus about the evil scheme of King Herod, the Tetrarch. And, and rather than running and hiding and rather than, than you know running away for fear of his life, you know, the Lord then turned to those Pharisees and he assured them that he was going to continue to accomplish the will of his heavenly father until the day when he finally offered himself a sacrifice for our sins there in Jerusalem. Well, now here in our text today, we actually find our savior. He's being invited to share a meal with the the Pharisees and, and we find him challenging the Pharisees about their unrighteous religiosity, which was keeping them from becoming mature believers. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 14. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse one, here we learn that it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find the Lord Jesus He's breaking bread with these religious rulers at the house of a certain Pharisee. And seeing how this was actually the Sabbath day, meaning that this was the Sabbath day of rest, 
Well, it's my guess that there were many Pharisees and, and, and many powerful people who were there at this house who had been invited to this Sabbath day supper. And, and we can't say for certain that, that this was the same exact group of Pharisees that uh, we learned about in our text last week, but chances are it is the same group. What we do know is that these religious rulers found here in our text today, they were watching him closely. They were watching him closely and they were waiting to see if he would heal this man who had dropsy and they wanted to know if, they would, that if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath because they wanted to accuse him. As a matter of fact, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse one. Here again, we learn that it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now, just to be clear about this, you know, dropsy, it's now known as edema. It's a swelling which is caused by fluid retention. This condition usually occurs in your feet or your legs or your ankles. The, the condition can also occur in your hands or your face or, or, or any other part of the body. And, and, you know, it was several years ago when I thought that I might have dropsy, but then I just realized that, no, I'm, I'm just fat, so that. You know, praise the Lord, I'm, you know. But seriously, though, dropsy is a condition that's typically caused by something more serious like heart failure or kidney disease. Now, we aren't told why this man had dropsy. Could have been caused by heart failure. Could have been caused by kidney disease. It, it might have been a thyroid disorder or maybe blood clots. There are many different reasons for why a person might have edema. But regardless of the reason for the condition, what we do know is that the man was obviously suffering. This is a painful condition. And this man was in pain. Chances are the only reason why this man with dropsy was invited to the party was because they were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to trick him and trap him. And, and the Pharisees wanted to see if the Lord Jesus would actually heal this man on the Sabbath. And in order to understand their concerns about this, let's take a moment to revisit the similar situation that we find back in Luke chapter 13. Let's back up to Luke 13. I want to focus your attention there in Luke 13 at verse 14. Here we learn that the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. This was the mindset of these religious uh, Pharisees. They, they, they truly believed that it was some sort of sin to heal a person on the Sabbath day. And so, you know, there in Luke 13, verse 14, we see the ruler of the synagogue rebuking Jesus because he had healed a handicapped woman on the Sabbath. How sad is that? The Sabbath day, sure, it's supposed to be a day of rest. And yet it's surprising to learn that the religious leaders there in Israel actually believed that it was a sin for the Lord to perform a miracle by healing, healing people on the Sabbath. And with that being the case, it's no wonder that the Lord Jesus challenged the Pharisees that we find here in our text today because they were watching him closely and they wanted to accuse him of doing something wrong like healing a man with dropsy on the Sabbath. With this in mind, let's turn our attention now back to Luke chapter 14. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 3, where we learn that Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Christ Jesus here is challenging these religious leaders who were trying to trap him by baiting him with this man that had dropsy. And rather than just falling immediately into their trap, he turns and presents them with this very simple question, is it lawful? Or you might pose the question like this, is it unlawful to heal someone? On the Sabbath? Would it be a sin for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath day? Now, if the religious leaders answered in the affirmative that it would be a sin, then it would be very simple to just say, okay, chapter and verse. Show me in the Torah. Where in the Torah does it say it's a sin to heal a sick person on the Sabbath? On the other hand, if it wasn't unlawful, to heal a person on the Sabbath, then what are they trying to catch him doing? What are they trying to accuse him of? Well, as we consider the question presented by the Lord, we should take some time to consider their response because we really have to think through like, you know, the, the entire argument that they're presenting here in verse four. It's right there where it says, oh, wait, they kept silent. They got nothing. They have no argument. They have no position. They can't pull up chapter and verse. They can't take you to the Torah and say, oh yeah, right here, Moses says it's unlawful. And because they were silent, we see in verse four that he took him and healed him and let him go. The lawyers and the Pharisees, these religious rulers sat in silence as they watched the Lord healing the man afflicted with dropsy. And as we consider how Jesus healed that man, you know, I'd like to just point out that it's nice to know that the Lord Jesus knew exactly what was causing the dropsy. We don't know. Chances are the doctors at that point in time didn't know, but Jesus knew. And isn't it nice to know that even when the medical experts don't really know what's wrong with us, Jesus knows and he knows how to heal. It's not to say that he always will heal here in this world. But if it's his decision to heal, he knows what's wrong and he can heal. And yes, even on the Sabbath. But now as we consider the way that the lawyers and the Pharisees sat there in silence, I should take a moment to point out that the word silence, which is found there in verse four, it's translated from a Greek word, which was used of those who hold their peace by remaining quiet. And as we consider their silence, I can't help but to wonder, you know, if their failure to respond was because they already knew they were wrong. Were they holding a position that they knew was wrong? Or were they sitting in silence as a form of protest, you know, because they weren't willing to admit that Jesus was right, but they weren't going to try to defend their position either because they knew there was no defense. As they sat in silence, the Lord posed a second question, which is found there in verse five. If you would look with me again, there at verse five, he answers them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Here in these verses, we find these lawyers, we find these Pharisees, they're, they're still struggling to defend their point of view. And, and the reason why is due to the fact that their position was unbiblical. And not only was it unbiblical, but it was also uh, an impractical restriction that uh, the, these people themselves didn't even follow. 
Every single one of these men would have no problem going and doing the hard work of pulling a beast of burden out of a pit, even if it was the Sabbath day. And I guarantee that would take more energy than Jesus healing a a sick person. They knew that their position was unbiblical, couldn't be supported by the Torah. They knew that their position was an impractical restriction that they themselves weren't even following. But rather than just simply saying, yeah, we're wrong, they sat in silence. The religious leaders continued to remain silent as they realized that they didn't have a reasonable defense for their unreasonable position. And and as we consider the way that they continue sitting in silence as they realize that they weren't able to answer Christ's very simple questions, I can't help but to wonder if the reason for their silent resistance, you know, uh, you know, was just, you know, them just unwilling to listen to to his his you know point of view. That might be the case. Maybe it was just silent resistance. At the same time, their silence may have been a sign of just an honest desire to learn more from the Lord. Maybe, just maybe, they were like, hey, we're just going to sit here in silence as we listen to Jesus teach about this. Maybe that's the case. I doubt it. But maybe. Were these spiritual leaders teachable? Or were they unteachable leaders who were way too proud to learn more from the Lord? We can't say for sure, but what we can do right now is just examine ourselves with the same question. Am I a teachable Christian? Am I always ready to learn something new from God's word? Or have I become a stubborn saint who is too proud to receive correction or redirection? With this question of mine, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Christian who fails to accept the correction or the redirection that comes from the Bible, this is the believer who will also fail to become mature in the Lord. And it's sad that there are so many who grow old in the Lord but they don't grow up in the Lord. They don't become mature believers because you know, they arrive at a, pl- a place where they're no longer teachable. And listen, the believer who is unable to receive the rebuke of God's word will remain in an arrested state of spiritual development until they repent of this unteachability. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping Pastor Timothy to realize that it was his job just to continue preaching the word of God, to continue using God's word to convince and rebuke and exhort, even if it, if it includes long suffering as he taught. 
It was his job to help the people at his church to become mature believers who were becoming more and more like Jesus. At the same time, Paul also informs Pastor Timothy here about those who would not endure the sound doctrine of the word being taught. And he tells us there in verse 3 that the time is going to come. There's going to be this time when they, speaking of Christians, will not endure. They won't put up with sound doctrine. They won't be able to sit through a 45-minute Bible study. And the reason why is because they have itching ears. And they, they want someone to tickle, tickle their ears. These are the believers who will be turned aside. And that concept of being turned aside there in, in the Greek, it's, it speaks of a dislocation of a body part. Think about that for a moment. The church is the body of Christ. And these who cannot sit through a 45-minute Bible study are going to be dislocated. And Paul is warning Timothy that he needs to be prepared for this. And as a pastor, I recognize how this applies to me here in the 21st century. That I should expect to see believers being turned aside, dislocated from their fellowship of faith because they cannot endure sound doctrine. They cannot hear a word of correction. They cannot hear a word of rebuke. And if you know, they go to church and they hear a message that is, you know, possibly a little convicting to them. It's just kind of like up, out the door, down the street, where they can find a message that's always positive and uplifting and all these sorts of things. And with that, we have to take a moment to ask, am I unteachable? Am I unable to hear a word of correction? Am I unwilling to receive the rebuke? And if so, then I would encourage you to consider the commendation that Paul presented to the Israelites who were there in a little place called Berea. We actually find this commendation in Acts chapter 17. It's verse 11, where Luke tells us that the people there in Berea were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. I love that. The Israelites at the synagogue in Berea were teachable. And they were more teachable than the Israelites who were in Thessalonica. And the reason why, according to Luke here, is because they were fair-minded. They were mentally fair about what they were hearing. They didn't just shut it down the minute they heard something they didn't like. And, and isn't that what we typically do? We start hearing something, that, well, we don't really like what we're hearing here, and so we just mentally turn off. Can't hear this, not going to hear it. That's not fair-minded. The question is, is what they're saying correct or not? Not do we like what we're hearing or not? There are many truths that we don't like hearing. But if you're going to be fair-minded, then you have to consider, is what they're saying True. And does it apply? The Israelites at the synagogue in Berea were fair-minded enough to consider Paul's interpretation of the scriptures as it, apply, as it pertained to Jesus Christ. 
And, and, and yet they weren't so open-minded that they were just going to accept it as, well, Paul said it, so therefore it must be. No, no, no. They searched the scriptures after receiving the teaching. They went and searched the scriptures for themselves to make sure that they weren't going to fall for some false teaching. But it, both of these things are, are so important for the Christian who wants to be mature. We have to be fair-minded enough to receive the information that, that we're being presented, but then turn around and be wise enough to go and search the scriptures for ourselves to make sure that what we're hearing is true. And in light of their example, we can see then that those who want to become mature believers, who are becoming more and more like Jesus, we have to have a mindset that maintains consummate teachability, which is just to simply say we need a high degree of teachability. We need a high degree of teachability. We need to be those believers who are like always ready to, to learn, always ready to hear something while being ready to test that, that information according to the scriptures. If you want to be a mature believer, then you have to remain ready to learn from the Lord, even if what we're learning hurts. Because this is what, this is what it takes to become a mature disciple of Christ. And while it's true that the mindset of Christian maturity includes consummate teachability, it's also true that the mindset of Christian maturity includes considerate humility. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 14. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting a parable about the importance of being humble. With this as the focus, if you would, uh, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 14. Look with me there, beginning at verse 7. Here Luke informs us that the Lord Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come to and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's continuing to address those who were there at that Sabbath day supper. And after watching you know, many of the people coming in, clamoring to acquire the best seats in the house, the Lord then presents them with this parable, which was designed to challenge the, the, the mental immaturity, which is found in the mindset of those who selfishly seek to secure uh, the, the highest place of honor for themselves. And, and while this lack of consideration for everyone else is not uncommon in the world today, it's most certainly something that's based on a, a mentality that leads people to think that they're more important than they actually are. Do you know anybody that thinks they're more important than they actually are? This immature mentality can actually be found in the anger of those you know, who feel like they're failing to receive the honor that they deserve from everyone around them. You know, we see this happening sometimes, you know, when, when men get angry and then they kind of pose that question, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I always love to tell those people, no, no, I don't. Who are you? I have no clue. There are women who attempt to honor themselves by trying to, trying to convince others that they're a queen. 
If you spend any time on YouTube or TikTok, you'll come across these, these gals, you know, they're called Karens now. And I just feel bad for every Karen in the world today. You know, there's some Karens that are very, very sweet ladies, you know, and, and, uh, and yet they've been, you know, labeled monsters now just because uh, anyway, feel bad for the Karens, but, but there are those ladies out there, regardless of their names that are just kind of like, I'm a queen, you know, and you're going to treat me like a queen and you're a queen of what your house. Yeah, they think they're a queen. Why? Because they were raised as princesses. And mommy and daddy told them that they're the most important person in the world. And now they're adults and they believe it. What about the able-bodied people who exalt themselves by parking in a handicapped spot? Really? You're that important? There are those selfish motorists out there. I'm sure we've seen them. They drive like they own the road. These people really upset me because, listen, they don't own the road. I do. It's my road. So as, as long as everybody else just figures this out, we'll be fine. But it's something I struggle with. You know, I get out on the road and it's just kind of like, who is this person in front of me trying to go slower? Get off my road. We all struggle with this. And, and listen, we expect this sort of self-exalting selfishness from little babies, don't we? We know little babies don't know better. When a baby cries because they're hungry, you know, we realize that this is the only way they know how to communicate their hunger pain. When a toddler cries because they didn't get their way, you know, we recognize that, you know, toddlers, they're not mature enough yet to recognize that many things in life won't go their way. That's something that they're going to have to learn to work through as time goes on. Sadly, though, there are many adults in the world who never grew past that level of maturity that uh, leads a person to think that crying and complaining and screaming and pooping your pants and whatnot will actually change the situation. Listen, crying and complaining and screaming, it's not the best way to make sure that everyone around you submits to your will. It's, It's a good way of pushing people away. But it's sad that we live in the society which is filled with people who were raised to believe that they are the most important person on the planet. And parents, I get it, you know, when, when you express that this is the most important, you know, person to you, it's like a, a parental love. I mean, you know, you can't, I get it. But many kids are raised to think that everyone else is supposed to see it this way too. <laughs> And it's sad that many kids, rather than being raised to become considerate members of a society in which they are just one person, there are many adults here in America who are, you know, raising their kids to think that, you know, they're a little princess, they're a little king, they're a little, you know, they're the most important person in the world. And and then many of these spoiled kids grow up to continue as adults suffering from spoiled child syndrome, which is then characterized by excessive self-centered and immature behaviors. It's sad to say that, you know, to to see what I'm talking about, just go spend a little time on YouTube or TikTok. You know, because all these people have phones and don't mind presenting their temper tantrums, you know, on their sites. And, and, And that alone is just amazing to me that somebody would actually film their own temper tantrum and then post it for everyone else to see. It's just kind of like, you have no shame. You are screaming like a baby, filming yourself while you're doing it, and now you want to post it for other people to see? And in their mind, they think this is normal. This is what we do now.
Parents, I, I can't help but to think of something that King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 22. There he declares, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. In other words, parents, if you want your children to become mature adults, like we're not expecting more maturity out of them today than they can actually muster, but, but they should be raised to become mature adults. And what that means is that it's the parent's job to correct the child lovingly so that the foolishness that's in their heart, the foolishness that's in their mind that, that leads them to think that they are the center of the world, that foolishness has to be corrected so that they can become mature adults who don't think the world revolves around them. But the parent who fails to correct the foolish thinking of a child is simultaneously raising them to become foolish adults who will then go on to to believe that the selfish indulgence of self-exaltation is always more beneficial than the humble consideration that Jesus demonstrated through his self-sacrifice. Without debate, it's important for Christian parents to realize that the Lord isn't calling you to entertain the selfish desires of your children, but rather to lovingly, along the way, correct them so that they think in a more mature fashion. He's calling parents to provide our kids with loving correction so that they might become considerate Christians who are thinking about others. At the same time, though, it's also important for every adult here today to spend some time examining their own lives by asking, am I still suffering from spoiled child syndrome? It's possible that some here, even today, are struggling with this sort of syndrome that comes from being raised in a, in a, in a sort of spoiled sort of way. So, so are we mature believers who, who are humbly considering others? Or are we still spoiled adults who are always seeking to secure the seat of honor for ourselves? And with this question in mind, I want to take another look at the point that Jesus here is making in our text today. Look with me again here at Luke chapter 14. I want to draw your focus and your attention there beginning at verse 10, because here Jesus declares, when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, rather than looking for a place of prominence as we seek to establish the privilege of personal prestige, you know, the the Lord is actually calling us to instead walk in humility uh, of selfless modesty, taking the, the lowest seat, considering everybody else in front of us. And as we do, the Lord says, yeah, if you're going to be honored, that'll come, Right. In order to help his audience grasp the reason for this lesson, the Lord then assures them that those who exalt themselves are going to be humbled, while those who will simply humble themselves will eventually be exalted. And listen, this wasn't the only time that the Lord presented us with this lesson. As a matter of fact, it's in Luke chapter 18. Uh, Later on, we'll study this again. That's where the Lord is teaching us about the importance of humility as we pray And at the end of that lesson, that's where the Lord declares everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Again, in Matthew chapter 23, the Lord Jesus also challenges his disciples by declaring, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now listen, when you find something taught in the scriptures once, it's important. When you find it taught twice, you know it's a little bit more important. When you find it thrice, you know it's extremely important. And three times in the New Testament, we find this lesson that if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 29. It's there where he declares a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Christian, listen, those who are filled with foolish pride, they will eventually be humbled. And the reason why is because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Conversely, the Christian who will learn how to walk in humility as we learn how to consider the people around us, we will not only retain the honor that we've already acquired, but according to the Lord, we will then be exalted even higher as we stand in the presence of our Savior Jesus. And with all this in mind, we should take another moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I becoming a mature believer who is humbly considering others, or am I still seeking to secure the seat of honor through self-exaltation? With this question in mind, let's consider something that Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Philippi. And so if you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. You see, it's here in the second chapter of Philippians. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging the Christians who were there at the church in Philippi. He's encouraging them to become mature believers who are humble enough to you know, consider the interests and the concerns and the needs of others. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Philippians chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being, notice, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Paul here is helping his audience to understand that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to have the mindset that reflects the mind of our Savior Jesus. And just like Jesus, who I'll remind you, set aside his own glory so that he could come and serve others with, with considerate humility, he set aside his glory so that he could come and offer himself a sacrifice for sins. And in light of his mindset, Christian, listen, we too have been called to become believers who are humbly esteeming others better than ourselves with self-sacrificial love, giving up the best seat for somebody else, setting aside our own glory to uh, you know, benefit someone else. And in this way, the Christian who continues to walk in this sort of considerate humility then maintains a mindset that results in our maturity as we become more and more like Jesus Christ. 
So we see then that the mindset of Christian maturity, it includes consummate teachability. And the mindset of Christian maturity also includes uh, considerate humility, which the Lord Jesus demonstrated when he came and died for our sins. Thirdly and finally, I want to consider how the mindset of Christian maturity includes compassionate generosity. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 14. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's challenging those who were limiting their generosity to those that, you know, would benefit them. Let's pick up our study of Luke 14, beginning at verse 12. Here Luke informs us that the Lord Jesus also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Now, as we consider this challenge that Jesus is presenting to the one who had invited him to eat bread there on the Sabbath day, it's my guess that Jesus recognized that everyone who had been invited, except for the guy with dropsy, uh, you know, everyone else was like some, you know, rich, powerful, you know, uh, you know, social, you know, mover and shaker. Uh, and, and so Jesus here is kind of challenging that mindset. Please understand that the Lord isn't saying what's well, wrong to invite your brother to dinner. You know, it's, it's wrong to invite, you know, your favorite neighbor or, you know, that's not the point. The point is what's driving the invitations. Christ Jesus was challenging the immature mindset of those who constantly attempt to climb the social ladder through relationships that they curate and cultivate. It's relationships that are based on the question, what can this person do for me? And it's very common even in the church. I thank the Lord, you know, for the, in, the, for the instructions that he gives here because it means that I get invited to a lot of parties seeing how you're required by Jesus to invite the lame. But uh, <laughs> that's another story. But listen, there are people who go out of their way to impress the influential people that they meet, you know, the, the people who are higher up on the social ladder. And so they go out of their way to be generous to those people. Why? Well, because they love relational reciprocity. And they're looking for those who can help them to increase their social capital. Christian, listen, if you're the sort of person who is only generous with those who then can increase your social influence, then you're failing to develop the mature mindset that the Lord Jesus demonstrated when he came to save everyone who will trust in him. The Lord Jesus here is encouraging his audience to share what they had with those, even those who were unable to pay them back with anything, including social clout. And with that being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that those who are truly developing into mature disciples of Christ, well, we're no longer basing relational connections on the social status of the other people that, that we choose to spend time with. And in order to further grasp the point that the Lord Jesus was making, let's take another look there at verse 13. Here again, Jesus declares, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
Jesus here is encouraging his audience to stop focusing on the fear that stems from the immature expectation of relational reciprocity. And instead, we must remember that the Lord Jesus might just want to use us to bless those who are apparently lower on the social ladder than we are. If your focus is always upward and who's above me and how can I somehow work my way up the ladder, you know, through this relationship, you'll never take the time to look down the ladder and see who can I bless without any expectation of being repaid. Yeah, if if you reach down the ladder and bless those underneath you, 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 you might not ever be repaid by them. But the Lord Jesus here assures us that that doesn't matter. Because the compassionate Christian who is generous with others who can't repay us, we will be repaid as we're rewarded in the resurrection. So we don't have to worry about it. With that being the case, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said back in Luke chapter 6. We studied it you know, several months ago, but it was back in Luke 6 verse 38 where Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Your generosity is going to be restored to you by the Lord, and so... It's going to be based on the measurement that you chose. And so rather than being all worried about relational reciprocity, which we oftentimes seek to secure through the connections that we develop, let's instead become those mature believers who just realize that the Lord has promised to bless us with everlasting blessings. We don't have to worry about being repaid. And let's remember that we're going to be rewarded according to the level of compassionate generosity that we employed while we were here in this world. With that being the case, we would all do well to remember what Jesus said when he declared it's more blessed to give than to receive. If all of your relationships are all focused on what can I receive from this person, you'll be less blessed than the person who says, what, who can I give to? Who can I be generous towards? With all this in mind, we would all do well to be compassionate Christians who are always ready to share what we've been given with others. Because listen, you're just a steward of what God has given you. It's not even yours. The Lord just entrusted it to you so that you could turn around and be generous to others. And if you're taking what God gave to you and using it as social manipulation so that you can somehow climb some perceived social ladder, there is no reward for any of that. In order to further grasp my point, I want to consider something that James wrote in his epistle. And so uh, let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of James, I just want to take a moment to point out that, you know, those who gauge their social connections uh, through, through the, the instrument of, of relational reciprocity, uh, these people oftentimes, you know, show respect to those who are wealthy or, or, or respect to those who have social clout while simultaneously looking down on those who may be poor and impoverished. And if this is something that you're still struggling with, well, then I encourage you to consider what James wrote here in his epistle. If you would look with me there at James chapter two, I want to begin reading there at verse one where James declared, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality. 
For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold, rings, and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Christian, listen. Those who are gauging all of their social connections according to the measure of relational reciprocity are not only failing to become compassionate Christians who are generous with what we've received from the Lord, but according to James here, the believer who begins looking down on those who are poor are actually sinning against others according to a superficial worldly standard. A poor person is not any, you know, uh, any worse than a rich person when it comes to sin. Poor people can be great sinners and rich people can be great sinners. Poor people can, you know, you know, be, you know, wonderful believers and rich people can be wonderful believers. You know, a, a person's wealth doesn't actually tell you whether a person you know, is a, a, a trustworthy person or not. A person's bank account won't clue you in to how spiritual they actually are. But the Christian who's only interested in developing relationships with those who are wealthy because they, well, they're hoping to, to receive some blessing from that overflow of wealth, well, they fail to become mature believers who are walking in the generous compassion of Christ Jesus. Why? Well, because they're always looking to receive the blessing from someone who's more wealthy than they are in sharing what they have with those who might be poor. And it's sad to say that there are many in the church today who, who treat the church like this sort of social club where connections can be established as we attempt to climb the social ladder here in our community. And I'm telling you, I experience it a lot. You know, I, I'm, I'm at times invited to go speak at other churches and sometimes I'm invited, invited to speak at a church that they don't know who I am. They've, nev- they've never seen my face before. And, and I'll go sit just in the auditorium and just watch how people treat me. And there are people who will walk in and just give me the stink eye. And then the same people hear someone address me as pastor. And all of a sudden, it's just kind of like, oh, you're a pastor? Oh, nice to meet you. And all of a sudden, their whole view of me changed. Why? Because I'm a pastor? I'm a sinner just like everybody else. Because I have now more social capital now, you know, and, and, and you think that that's cool, so now, so now you're going to treat me differently than you treated me just five minutes ago? This should not be happening in the church. Listen, if your plan is to come to church, you know, so that you can increase your social capital as you try to climb the social ladder here. See me after church today. I'll provide you with a list of local churches where real powerful people are going. You won't really find much of that here. 
And I'm, I don't even know, you know, who gives what here. I never look at, at any offerings. I don't want to know what you give because I don't want to look at you with dollar marks above your head and treat you according to what you give here. I'm not about that at all. And I remember someone, you know, years ago trying to, you know, force their will on me by suggesting that if they leave our church, they're taking their money with them. And, and I responded by just saying, you, you must think I'm some other pastor because none of that moves me. If you want to know churches where you can climb up the social ladder, man, there's, there's several churches here in town where you can go hobnob with politicians and, and wealthy people. And, and yeah, go, have fun with that. As for this fellowship, I don't care how much you make or how powerful you are or, or, or how poor you are. I'm more interested in helping believers to become compassionate Christians who are mature enough to recognize that the Lord is calling us all to be generous with what we've received. And so I encourage you to remember that it's always more blessed to give than it is to receive, whether we have little or a lot. With all this in mind, I just want to wrap up this message by presenting the same question that I posed at the beginning of the study. And the question is this, am I still an immature believer or am I a Christian who's maintaining a biblical mindset as I develop into a disciple who's becoming more and more like Jesus? With this question in mind, I remind you that the mindset of Christian maturity includes consummate teachability, which is seen in the life of the believer who is able to receive the loving correction that comes from God's word. The mindset of Christian maturity also includes considerate humility, which is found in the life of the believer who considers the needs of the people around us. And the mindset of, the Christ, uh, of Christian maturity includes compassionate generosity, which is found in the life of the Christian who's always ready to bless others regardless of whether they can return the favor or not. As we consider these three marks of Christian maturity, I encourage you, let's pray for one another. Let's pray for one another so that we might develop into the disciples that the Lord wants us to become. And let's hold one another accountable as we should so that we might all become those believers who are maintaining a biblical mindset which will help us to become truly mature Christians. Let's pray.